You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Here comes Dr. History. Good morning, Zeth. How are you? I'm doing great. So I've got a couple of people to thank. I want to thank Brandon, who wrote and uh, explained that, you know, we always ask what uh, dollar amount today that it was back then. Yeah, we had the story last week, I think, about the gold, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. So Brandon informed me that uh, today's is about 8 to 10 times more than what it was back then. So 100000 would be like 800000 Yeah. Or a million. So, yeah. yeah. So about eight to ten uh, times more today. Okay. And then Austin actually went to a lot of work, and he sent me a list of a lot of the guns that were used back in the old west. So I'm, I'm still wow. I'm still going to try to get a, a story done on on, the on guns. guns. Yeah. And also last week I went out to see Ray Bagby the other side of Declo again, right? Because I wanted more information about his. Uh, Wagons and his stagecoach was back. I was able to see his stagecoach that he built. Uh, that's an exact. I didn't know it had left. Yeah, he somebody had been using it for something. I can't oh remember. My. But it is immaculate. Just uh, a, a perfect replica uh, of the stagecoaches, the Abbott and Downing stagecoaches, I believe. But anyway, and uh, I told you that Ray gave me this book. It's called Throw Down the Box. Yes. So today's story is going to come out of that book that he gave me again. So, uh, yeah, Ray, uh, and folks, I just want to tell you something. Uh, I'm writing a book, and I think I've told you this, Zeb, and it's ready to go to the editors. You're that close. And I'm going to record it as an audio book and uh, have it in digital form, and I hope to release all three at the same time. And uh, uh, Are you going to do the recording, too? Yes, I'm going to do the recording. There's a guy in Salt Lake that uh, I recorded years ago. He has a professional studio, so I will be recording my own audio book. So what's the name of the book? It's called John Turner Radmore, From Coal Miner to Cowboy, My Journey, by what? Dr. History. You sure come up with those short titles. <laughs> Well, the title really is From Coal Miner to Cowboy. I see. And uh, anyway, it, yeah, I, I'm using a lot of the stories from the podcast. I, I don't want to take too much time here, but, you know, I'm still working on mine. Mm -hmm. And what was the hardest part for you to write this book? I'll tell you mine quickly, but go ahead. Uh from you know, I really did not have a hard time. The, 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 I guess the hardest thing was trying to make sure I had everything uh, in context as far as the time period. Did you have trouble? And I, this is where I'm having trouble dedicating time to sit down and work on it. You know, with uh, I, I love doing it, so I have just I just plunked it out last year, last uh, winter. I see. And so I haven't worked on it much this summer. but So, folks, I'll let you know when it's ready to roll. Okay, and we will publicize it. Of course, I do get a free copy. <laughs> well, maybe. Okay. <laughs> so today, folks, we are going to go back uh, about 200 years. 
Now, have you ever wondered, Zeb, who the first people were that said, you know, I think I'll just uh, head west in a wagon? Yeah, you know, it amazes me that back in Daniel Boone times, yeah. you know, where Daniel was always uh, known to be saying, I'm just going to check over and see what's on the other side of that hill. Yeah. Well, I guess that's where it started. Yeah, kind of. a little farther, a little farther. Yeah. So now near the mid part of the uh, uh, 1800s, almost everything west of the Missouri River was known as the Great American Desert. Now, Easterners had read about the exploits of the mountain men and the fur trappers, and they knew that the Rocky Mountains in California were out there somewhere. But they didn't know where, for sure. However, even if they wanted to go west, there was no way to go unless they walked across 2,000 miles of barren plains, snow-capped mountains, and burning deserts through wilderness of grizzly bears, rattlesnakes, Indians. So it's little wonder that hardly anybody set their sights on heading west but during the 1840s, that began to change. Did they know and understand the hardships? You know, I don't know. Maybe as we go along, we're going to talk about some of those hardships. So now, for more than 200 years, Americans stayed close to the eastern seaboard. Only a few bold adventures during, uh, during to explore the lands beyond the Missouri River. In time, a few brought wagons to the river, but decades would pass before the prairie sod west of the river would actually see the mark of a wagon wheel. That You know, you could go by horse and mule and stuff, but a wagon, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. But it wasn't until 1821, about 200 years ago, did a wagon reach Santa Fe from what we would call the States back then. Uh, during that year, William Becknell drove a small freight wagon from Franklin, Missouri, along what would soon become the famed Santa Fe Trail. How did they know where to go? I, I think they followed uh, Indian trails. They followed, and there were men on horseback that had gone before. So I think they did know kind of where to go. But a wagon road to the faraway Pacific that was not even dreamed about back then. So here we go, March of 1827. A band of fur trappers under William H. Ashley took the first wheeled vehicle west of the Missouri River along what would become the Overland Trail to the Rocky Mountains and over the South Pass to the Great Salt Lake. Now, when I say wheeled vehicle, it was only a crude two-wheeled carriage on which was mounted a small cannon. It was drawn by a team of mules. But it left a track for other wheels to follow, and during July of 1829, William Sublett of the fur-trapping firm of Smith, Jackson, Sublett arrived at the mouth of the Popoagee River near the foot of Wyoming's Wind River Mountains. He brought ten wagons and two small Dearborn buggies, and they were all heavily loaded with Indian trade goods. They were the first four-wheeled vehicles to reach the Rocky Mountains, and to get there from St. Louis had taken Sublet three months and six days. Wow. So that was the first. To now, get... Is that the guy that uh, was the namesake of Sublet? Yes. Yeah, William Sublet. Although he had a brother, too, and I can't remember his first name. Anyway, so then we move ahead a few more years. It was July of 1836 that the Reverend Marcus Whitman and the Reverend Henry Spalding 
with their wives, uh, led by mountain man uh, Broken Hand Fitzpatrick, took a light spring wagon across the South Pass. It was loaded with household goods for the two missionaries. They hoped to establish a mission among the Nez Perce Indians. And several days travel from Fort Hall, an axle broke on the wagon. It was then converted into a two-wheeled cart, which they took as far as Fort Boise before it fell apart. Now, still, theirs was the first wheels to make tracks so far west along what the pioneers would later call the Oregon Trail. So uh, Spalding and Whitman were the first to take a wagon that far, even though, you know, they didn't make it all the way. It amazes me how tough the wagons had to be to go on those journeys. I mean, the rocks and the soil. Oh, yeah. It it was tough going on equipment. Now, the first organized wagon train of immigrants west bound for California left the Missouri in May of 1841. Hmm. It was a small band of 69 people led by John Bidwell and John Bartleson. Now, neither man had any knowledge of the country ahead. They knew only that California was out there somewhere. They didn't know anything? Not much. You know, again, oh, yeah, you'd want to sign up for that wagon yeah, train. Yeah, sign me up. But uh, anyway, they knew it was out there and a long way west of the Missouri. Now, luckily, they joined with a small group of Catholic missionaries led by Father Pierre de Smit and guided again by Broken Hand Fitzpatrick. So they did have some help. Okay, um, Father DeSmit agreed to let the immigrants accompany him as far as the Soda Springs, uh, which we know Soda Springs, Idaho, yeah. on the Bear River, where the trail turned north to Oregon Territory and the Nez Perce Country. Well, when the travelers reached the South Pass, the wagon tra- tracks made by Sublet's wagons 10 years earlier could still be seen. They could still see those wagon tracks, which really? surprises me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the DeSmit Dismit missionaries and the Bidwell Bartleson party parted company at the great bend of the Bear River near Soda Springs. With no trail to follow, many of the little wagon train became a little bit terrified and scared. More than half of the party elected to follow Fitzpatrick, hoping he could lead them to Oregon. But both Bidwell and Bartleson were determined to reach California. So with their little band reduced to only 32 members with four wagons, they turned south into the unknown. They didn't know. They had no clue. No. But wow. here's what they did. They followed an old Indian trail along the Bear River to the Great Salt Lake. Okay. How so, did they know it was going to go to the Salt Lake? I don't know that they did. They followed this trail hoping, I guess. <laughs> so now uh, so now we got two groups, okay? Now circling the north end of the lake across a desert of coarse salt and scrub sagebrush, this tiny wagon train began to fall apart. Now, the dry desert air loosened the wagon wheels, uh, while white alkali dust burned the oxen's eyes. Fresh water was hard to find, and grass for their livestock was pretty scarce. Now, faced with the lateness of the season and knowing they might never reach the Sierras before snowfall, the pioneers were finally forced to abandon their wagons at a place called Owl Springs, and it's on the west side of the Great Salt Lake. Now, I'm not exactly sure where that's at. The west side? Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's, it's pretty uh, dry out there. Yeah. Anyway, they made they uh, made packs for their oxen and started out on foot across the Nevada desert. 
After incredible hardships, they finally reached the Sierras, where with barely enough strength left to climb the peaks, they staggered on to Sutter's Fort in Sacramento, California. They climbed over by by hand and foot over yeah. the Sierras? Yep. The wagons had fallen apart, and they had only what they could carry in their arms, and the rags which had been their clothing was kind of clinging, you can imagine, starving their skeletal frames. I mean, it, it was rough. They were the first wagon train immigrants to reach California, although they had walked nearly half the way. Uh, uh, But they had taken wagons farther west than anyone else had. (laughs) Two years later... I thought I turned my phone off. Sorry, Zeb. Wrong. (laughs) So two years later now, 1843, the now kind of little-known J.B. Childs party of eight wagons made its way west, led by the old trailblazer Joseph Rutherford Walker. Now, traveling as far as Fort Hall on the Snake River. Now, folks, Fort Hall is in Idaho, right along the Snake River, in case you're wondering. Um, They turned to the southwest through the City of Rocks. And that's where the California Trail, you know, split off from the Oregon Trail. So uh, even then, uh, the City of Rocks is a well-known landmark uh, located, you know, near the Idaho-Utah border and continued on to the Humboldt River. And they followed this uh, to the edge of what they call the 40-mile desert. Now, with man-killing labor, they finally got their wagons to the foothills of the Sierras. But with fresh snow already uh, dust in the peaks, uh, like the Bidwell Partelson, Bartelson party before them, they were forced to leave their wagons and continue on foot. But the trail had been pushed a little farther west. So they stopped their wagons and broke off what they needed and made packs and literally carried what they had left right. of possessions. Yeah. How long did it take them? Uh, it doesn't tell me here, but uh, it had to be at least three months or four months. Wow. So, but so now we had a, a, another set of wagons that had gone just a little farther west. Um, so, now the first pioneers to take the wagons across the continent and over the Sierras to California was the Stevens Murphy Party of 1843, led by Elisha Stevens and guided by uh, old quote old Greenwood mountain man Caleb Greenwood. Now that little party of only 26 men, eight women, and 17 children with 11 wagons, they left the Missouri on May 18, 1843. Following the now familiar trail across the South Pass to Fort Hall, they reached the City of Rocks and the Raft River in mid-August. So now we're starting to get kind of a real trail headed over. So they left in May. Yeah. And they got to the City of Rocks in August. Right, yeah. Now it's getting a little late to cross the mountains. Anyway, they traced the tracks of the previous party, the Childs Party, along the Humboldt River, and now through September, they made their way to the Truckee River at the foot of the Sierras. Now, following the river stream upstream, they pushed, pulled, and lifted the wagons up vertical cliffs and across the face of the mountain through two feet of newly fallen snow. These people were tough, Zeb. Uh, Confronted by the deepening snows of October, they were forced to leave six wagons at a place called Bigler's Lake, actually, which is Lake Tahoe. And by the way, Zeb, just throw something in. I'm related to that Bigler. Are you really? Yeah, he's like a great, great uncle or something. And he's the one that got lost? No. I was going to say it figures. No, No, but... (laughs) 
But the remaining five wagons were dragged down the granite canyons and the precipices to Sutter's Fort, where they arrived on November 14th. 1843. They got there in November. They did. They were lucky. Oh, yeah. This was the first immigrant party to take wagons overland to California. When spring came, they returned to the crest of the mountains, where they recovered the wagons left behind. Old Elisha Stevens got every wagon in his train safely to California without anybody losing their life. The long trail west, though hardly more than a track through the wilderness, was now complete. That's how long it took to finally get wagons. And they left in May. Yeah. Wow. And made it in November, finally over These to... people had a lot of tenacity. Well, and when I... Did you get that where I said they had to lift wagons yeah. and mules up and down? There's a cliffs. movie with Kirk Douglas. Remember that movie where he was the scout for this wagon train headed west? And they had to lower the wagons by yeah. hand over these cliffs and everything? Right. Wow. Yeah. Now, the first wagon train of 1846, uh, which was what, uh, three years later, uh, was the Harlan Young Party. Now, the Harlan Young Party was some 40 wagons followed down the Weber River into the Salt Lake Valley, become the first wagon train to take uh, the Echo Canyon and the uh, Weber River Trail. Wow. Now, this was tough too, Zeb. The last wagon train of 1846 was, the, of course, the ill-fated Donner Party, oh, led, led by George Donner and James Reed. Yeah. And they followed near the same route as had, the people before them, with one fatal exception, with 23 wagons and 87 members, they decided against the attempt, attempting the difficult passage through Devil's Gate. Instead, they cut a road grade through the heavy brush of a place called East Canyon to the summit of Big Mountain from the rocky ridge of the Wasatch Mountains. They cut a trail through the brush and the rocks down the steep side of Immigration Canyon to enter the valley below. Now, already, with all that work, they were falling behind, uh, all the others that were, had been ahead of them. Well, we know the delay caused by building the road slowed them three weeks more, and we know, obviously, that the delay proved fatal. So September, when they should have been in the Sierras, found the daughter party still crossing the muddy, rutted salt flats, Every heavy item that could be spared was thrown from the wagons to lighten the load. And still, they were tired. The oxen were thirsty. They couldn't move the heavy wagons. Extra axles, chains, blacksmith tools, even anvils were thrown away, along with any valued property, you know, chests of dishes, books, clothing. Is there still a lot of that that's being found out there today? You know, probably not much, but I'm sure there's got to be stuff that's buried along those trails. But uh, even rifles and pistols, they actually dug pits and cast some of these things, hoping to go back maybe later and, and get them. So, but with large numbers of their livestock dying, five wagons had to be abandoned. Um, and for decades afterwards, a long line of bleached bones and decaying bits of pieces of wagons and cargo marked the Donner's Trail of Tears. And delayed and too late until obviously it was too late in the season. The Donner Party became snowbound in the mountains, where 44 of their 87 souls starved and froze to death. So half of them didn't make it. Um, no one uh, ever followed uh, the Hastings cutoff again after that, which is why it took them so long. Uh, 
Many believe that George Donner, who was too weak to go on and near death from first, uh, close by uh, a place called Floating Island, he cast a heavy chest of gold coins near where his oxen fell, the gold he hoped to buy cheap Mexican lands when they reached California, and it was known that he sold his eastern farm for $12,000, uh, so that would have been 120000 now and in gold coin. And he carried this in a strong chest hidden in his wagon. Well, that chest was never seen again after the ordeal on the salt flats. And if he did cash his gold on the salt flats, it's still there because he never returned. You know, George Donner was the, one of the first to die in the Sierras. And the road west still wasn't ready for stagecoaches. So I think we'll end right there, Zeb. But I've got more to talk about, about some of the other Early, early travelers that uh, that headed west. So. It was the same grind every day. Get up, walk. Right. Get up and walk. How many miles a day did they average? Um, was it twenty-five? You know, I, I, it depended, of course, obviously on the you terrain. Know, yeah, yeah, the terrain. Whether they're going up hills, down hills, across. You know, and uh, the dust could be a, oh. uh, two feet thick, yeah. two feet deep. And then if it rained, then you had two feet of mud. And there was time and time again when uh, wagons would have to unhitch their team, hook onto another wagon to pull them through or up a hill, go back and hook on two or even three teams to another wagon to pull them up a hill or through the mud or through the wow. through the dust. And the patience. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. And uh, I couldn't have done it. I don't think I could have said it. Yeah. I would have been discouraged. And uh, yeah. But anyway, the fortitude and the strength and the courage of these men and their the women oh and my. the kids and the kids. I mean, the kids, the kids had to be tough because oh they my. they had to help uh, harness and unharness the yeah. wagons. They had to help uh, find firewood or buffalo dung for their fires. You know, so it, it was tough going for everybody. Oh my goodness! I got to run, but right. great. You're going to continue this on I next am. week. There's right. more I want to talk about. Very good, Doc. History. Outstanding job again for this week. Tune in every Tuesday at exactly 10.06 and we'll have Dr. History. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.